You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. I'm so glad you're here as we continue our journey through the book of Ephesians. Men, I'd like to ask a favor of you. After this service is over, we need a few guys to go downstairs and help set up some tables for our spring picnic this afternoon. So if you wouldn't mind hanging around maybe for 15 to 20 minutes and uh, doing that, that would be a great, great help to us. So in advance, thank you. And thank you also for going out to uh, the Blackboard in the Connection Center after the service and picking an envelope or two off of that board in order to support our students. Just know that when you give money for our students to go to camp, you are making an eternal investment. It's not just about putting a check or dollar bills in that envelope and putting it in one of the black boxes. It's about saying, yeah, I want to invest in the spiritual growth and health of our teens. So please, please ask the Lord how he would have you to do that and give sacrificially to that. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 10. And as I was working my way through these verses this week, I realized that these spiritual blessings that the Lord has given us in Jesus Christ are immense. Sometimes so immense that I feel like it's challenging to get our hearts and our minds around them in terms of how these spiritual blessings actually impact our everyday lives. And it hit me this week that I think this is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul prays the way that he does toward the end of Ephesians chapter 1. And that's actually where I want to start this morning and then go back to Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. But listen, beginning in verse 15, to how Paul prays once he kind of unpacks all of these spiritual blessings. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So I would encourage you, as we kind of continue to unpack these spiritual blessings, to make that prayer your prayer. I don't know if, like me, you're guilty of praying things like, God, I just, I just hope that you'll bless so-and-so. Well, the reality is, God has already richly blessed us in Christ. What Paul says is we should be praying for one another that we actually get it. That the Holy Spirit would enable us through insight and wisdom to take these massive spiritual blessings and incorporate them into our everyday lives. So let's pray that now before we jump into verses 7 through 10. Father, we do ask this morning 
that right here and right now in this place, that you would grant to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. God, ultimately, if we do not come to know you better, if we do not come to know you in a more intimate way, in a way that actually transforms our lives, then what are we actually doing here? So we ask in line with the prayer we find here that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might truly comprehend today what it means to be redeemed, what it means to be forgiven, what it means to have real eternal perspective in the midst of our everyday lives. These rich spiritual blessings are high and lofty, and we need your help to bring them down to earth. So would you do that this morning for us and in our midst? And we do ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. And I invite you to take that up so that you can follow along with us as we work our way through these verses this morning. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word this morning. I want you to see three things from these verses this morning. The first is found in verses 7 and 8. In Christ, which of course is the theme that ties verses 3 through 14 together. In Christ, the Apostle Paul says that we have been given the spiritual blessing of redemption. In him we have it. Now what is redemption? Redemption is simply freedom from bondage or captivity through a payment. It is released through a ransom. The word was typically and normally used to um, talk about releasing anything from loosening a belt to loosening a tied up animal. But in the biblical sense, it means to loose or release a human being from captivity. And what you need to know is the person or the people who are redeemed then belong to the one who redeemed them. So this is clearest in Exodus, a book that we just spent a year walking through together. Listen to what God says in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So that's 
the bringing out of slavery part. And then verse 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So there's a bringing out component and a bringing into component of redemption. Now this idea of having redemption in Christ Jesus points first and foremost to the human condition apart from the grace of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you and I are enslaved to sin. He uses the language of being dead in trespasses and sins. We are captive. We are held in bondage because of our rebellion against God. And we are, because of that rebellion, guilty. Which means we are bound to pay the due penalty for walking away from the God who gives life. Just like if you unplug a lamp from the socket, that light's dead. So it is with us. Because we've walked away from God, we will, as a consequence, die. Apart from God's intervention, that is our lot. We are captive to our sin and captive to the consequences of our sin. But here's the good news. The Apostle Paul says not only are we chosen, not only are we destined, not only are we adopted, but we have redemption. Presently, in Christ Jesus, Paul says here that you and I, if we have entrusted ourselves to Christ, we are free. We've been brought out of captivity to sin, and we've been brought into a new relationship with the living God through the unique and only Son of God, a relationship that can best be described as going from slaves to sons and daughters. Now, what price did God pay for our release? What does Paul say? We have redemption through his blood. Our freedom cost the Son of God his life. We have redemption through his blood. And how does Paul go on to describe that redemption? He describes it as the forgiveness of our sins. Now go back to Exodus again. How many plagues did God unleash on Pharaoh and the gods and goddesses of Egypt in judgment against them? Ten. What was the tenth? The death of the firstborn son. Now that plague came upon all the Egyptians, but it could have as easily come upon the children of Israel as well. Had they not followed God's specific instructions to take and sacrifice a spotless lamb and take the blood of that lamb and paint it over the doorframe of their homes so that God's judgment might what? Pass over them. It's the most vivid and beautiful picture we have in the entire Bible of what Jesus did for us. 
Through his shed blood for us upon the cross of Calvary, he was judged in our place. So that through his blood, we now have redemption. We now have freedom. You and I are able to leave Egypt because Jesus died and made a way for us. Think about this with me for just a second. Before you and I came to faith in Christ, what power or ultimate power did the devil have over us? Death. The devil has always been an accuser. And apart from the blood of Christ shed for our sins, the accusation that you and I deserve death for our sins has always stuck. Right? Not anymore. God has redeemed us unto himself through the precious blood of his beloved son. Through Jesus, our debt has been paid. Our willful rebellion against God has been forgiven. And as Psalm 103 says, God has redeemed us from the pit. I think that's a reference to Joseph being thrown into the pit and sold into slavery in Egypt. God has redeemed us up out of the pit of slavery to our sin. He's picked us up and he's whisked us away to the king's house and he's put the robes of Christ's righteousness upon us and he's given us a seat at his table and a room in his palace. Our rags have become Riches, our bondage has been, has been given way to brotherhood with Christ. In Christ, you and I are truly free. Truly free. From the single most significant problem that you and I have as human beings. And that is the guilt of our sin and the consequence of that guilt which is death. Paul writes that we have redemption through his blood described as the forgiveness of our trespasses or our willful crossing of the line, our willful rebellion against God. And Paul goes on to say that we have this redemption through his blood according to The riches of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, ours is not a cheap salvation. As Peter writes in his first letter, our salvation was purchased, not with silver or gold or any other perishable thing, but with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of a spotless lamb. It cost our king everything to secure our salvation. And that price was joyfully and willingly offered by the Father through the Son. And it is now applied to us via faith as the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus did And applies it to everyone who entrusts themselves to Christ. 
Now, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that everyone wants to be free. Do you? Freedom is one of those ultimate longings of the human heart. But what does it really mean to be free? Have you ever thought about that? What does it really mean to be free? Is is freedom the opportunity to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, for as long as I want, without anyone intervening to stop me. Is that what freedom is? Many people think that's what freedom is. In fact, I would argue that that's probably the dominant understanding of freedom in our culture today. The unhindered ability to live my truth to develop my identity, to do whatever I want with whomever I want. In fact, the greatest sin in our culture may well be the willingness to say, you can't be that, or you can't do that. What if true freedom involves being liberated from slavery to myself? What if wanting to do what I want and be what I want and go where I want, what if that's ultimately slavery? What if the world's actually bigger than me? What if being enslaved to the confines of my little kingdom constructed for one is what real bondage is? What if true freedom involves being liberated from that and liberated into the great big wide world of God's kingdom where you and I breathe the air of his glory and we come to discover that real life and real freedom is about more than pleasing ourselves. It's in fact about living to please and glorify God. What if true freedom went to the very root of what's wrong with us? What if if the guilt that we bear on our consciences could be lifted and we could actually truly breathe again as if the burden had been completely removed and we can live as God created us to live? Free men and free women loving God with everything we are and seeking to love one another as Jesus has loved us. What if that were true freedom? I think that's what the Bible says true freedom is. And when Paul says we have redemption, Paul is beginning to paint a picture for us that he will go on to flesh out in the rest of Ephesians of what this looks like. Now, if this redemption is ours, I wonder why many of us as Christians don't live as free people. I think some of us allow the enemy to convince us that our past sins aren't really forgiven. 
Again, the enemy is a master accuser. And just because the Father has forgiven you for your past sins doesn't mean that he's willing to let them lie dormant. He knows your past as well or better than you do. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, this, experienced this, but in the oddest moments, your past can come flying back in your face and flood you with shame, right? It's the strangest thing. Have you ever found yourself asking, where did that come from? That happened 20 years ago. And I feel horrible about it right now. The enemy's the master accuser. And some of us are allowing him to shackle us rather than experiencing the freedom that's ours in Christ through our past. Some of us, perhaps all of us at one point or another, we allow the enemy to convince us to run from God rather than to God when we sin. So it's not just about our past, it's about our present. It's about not knowing that our Father is good, that our Father loves us, and that if we run home to him like the prodigal son, he's not going to lecture us. What's he going to do? Embrace us. He's going to forgive us. Repentance as a word and an idea sometimes gets a bad rap, but repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance means turning around and running home to the Father. And before you can even get the words out, the Father says, I forgive you. And then I think there's a future component too. We allow the enemy to convince us that we'll never be truly free from the sin that so easily entangles us. So we allow the enemy to convince us that our past isn't really forgiven, that God won't forgive us now, or that there won't ever be a time in the future when we will be free from this present sin struggle. The Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And here's the key phrase. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God at work in your life through Jesus Christ isn't only intended to free you from something, it's intended to free you into something. And all of these spiritual blessings that the Apostle Paul is piling up one by one in Ephesians chapter 1 are intended to inform this new identity that's been given to us in Christ so that we can begin to essentially be who we are in our everyday lives. Friend, God wants to see you free. The Holy Spirit has been given to you that you might grow in and experience more and more and more of this freedom. 
But the enemy doesn't want that. Not at all. He would rather see you bound than to see you liberated from bondage. But the Apostle Paul says, in Christ, we have redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses through his blood, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. He didn't just give you and I a drop of grace. He didn't give us a 16-ounce bottle or a two-liter. Paul says he lavished it upon us. Lavished it. I love that word. Paul loves that word too. For the Apostle Paul, there are no hyperboles when it comes to grace. He can't speak too highly about it or too much about it. He can't praise God enough for it. Because in Christ, God has lavished it upon us. So spiritual blessing, number one today, we have redemption. Secondly, in verse 9, we read that in Christ, the mystery at the heart of history has been made known to us. Now there's a direct connection between verse 7, verse 8, and then going into verses 9 and 10. In verse 8, Paul says, which God lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What does what that wisdom and insight bestow upon us? Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Have you, ever, um, have you ever experienced what it's like to be the one with insider information? How does that feel? I can tell you that it feels better to be on the inside than the outside. We all know that. I can remember first introducing my girls to the original Star Wars films. And I can remember watching A New Hope and probably being more excited, in fact, than they were to watch the original films. And then I can remember starting The Empire Strikes Back and knowing, knowing that there's this big reveal in the movie, right? Like, you find out that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Now look. No, no, no. Uh-uh. You're like 30 years too late on that. You can't call spoiler alert on me on that one. But I can remember watching that movie knowing all along that that was coming and excited for them to experience that moment. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that one of the spiritual blessings that the Father has given us in Christ is the blessing of wisdom and insight. Insight into what? The mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure or his delight, which he has set forth in Christ. Now, what is this mystery? 
Let's set that aside for just a moment. First, I want you to notice that you and I would not have this wisdom and insight were it not for God lavishing his grace upon us. This wisdom and insight that Paul is talking about is a gift. So whatever the mystery is, you and I can only understand it and make sense of our everyday lives in light of it because God graciously grants us knowledge of it. So this is a mystery that isn't figured out. It's a mystery that's revealed. So what about this mystery? Well, in the New Testament, this whole idea of mystery isn't about something that's decoded. It isn't about winning a game of Clue. It isn't about reading an Agatha Christie mystery novel and figuring out who the killer is before you reach the end of the book, which my wife is so good at. It isn't about decoding some secret message. In the New Testament, the idea of mystery conveys a sense that this is something that's been there all along, but it can only ever be known by divine revelation, by God pulling back the curtains, so to speak. Paul is arguing that God has revealed the mystery of his will to us. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses this word mystery in several different ways. But at the heart of it is the fact that God has shown us as his people what all of history is about. God has shown us as his people that his plan for redeeming a people unto himself, his plan for healing the brokenness of the universe is going to be brought about and has in fact already begun to be brought about through Jesus Christ, his only son. Now it involves us specifically too as participants in that plan. Listen, listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 4 through 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Part of what's revealed in Jesus Christ is how God ultimately was going to bless the nations through the family of Abraham. How God was not only going to save the Jewish people for himself, but how God through them was going to bring unto himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. In other words... The question has been answered to the promise long ago given to Abraham. This is how God's going to fulfill it. Now the question that I've had this week as I've thought about these things is, so what? Like, if, if God intends these rich spiritual blessings to make a difference in how we see him and how we see ourselves and how we 
live our lives, what in the world are we to make of this insight and this wisdom into the mystery of God's will? Well, here's the thing. If you are in Christ, not only are you in on the mystery, but you're in on the mystery from the inside. You're a participant in it. It's been made known to us as recipients. Ultimately, the mystery has been revealed because the key piece of the puzzle has been revealed. Jesus Christ, the God-man. The mystery of God's will centers upon him. He is the means by which God the Father has chosen to pour out the riches of his grace upon all peoples. By the way, um, this needs to be said. Having this insider information should not cause us to be puffed up. That's what knowledge tends to do. But this isn't the kind of knowledge that should cause us to be prideful. Why? Because it isn't something we deciphered, decoded, or figured out. It's something that God graciously revealed to us. It isn't the kind of knowledge that we have and other people don't because we're somehow smarter than them. It's the kind of knowledge that God revealed to us in grace. The kind of knowledge that though we were on the outside looking in, we've now been included. And if we were on the outside looking in and we've now been included, what kind of people should we be? People who go out into the highways and the byways. People who, who say to other people, you can be included too. We didn't solve this mystery. It was revealed to us. And the Apostle Paul talks about how it was revealed to us when we were once on the outside looking in. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. If anything, this is the kind of knowledge that you and I should shout from the rooftop. This is the kind of knowledge that should make us want to say, hey, did you know that the God of the universe is taking everybody who will come? Did you know that there's a place for you at his table? Oh, you think you don't belong? You think you don't fit? You don't think you're worthy? Perfect, you're qualified. Did you know that the gates of his estate are wide open? And he's inviting people all over the planet to become members of his forever family through Jesus, his son. And if you're sitting here today and you think you're too far gone, that promise includes you. You know, insider information... <clears throat> is typically only available to the initiated, 
to those who have the skill to discern it, the money to pay for it, the patience to go through the process to learn it, or the genetics to inherit it. This is different. God reveals it by grace to those that he redeems from slavery to sin, whom he then brings into his home as sons and daughters. It's like Jesus saying to his disciples in the Gospel of John, I don't call you servants any longer because everything my Father revealed to me, I've now revealed to you. Now I call you what? Friends. I call you friends. In other words, look, here's the deal. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to get in on this mystery, but you do have to be willing to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says, the mystery of God's will, his good pleasure has been set forth in Christ. Paul goes on to talk further about the mystery of God's will, which he says is according to God's purpose or God's good pleasure, this will which he has set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now I think that this verse, verse 10, may be the most significant verse out of all the verses in this long sentence that runs from verse 3 to verse 14. This is a verse with so, so much significance packed into it. You know, as human beings, you and I are meaning makers. We can't help it. Eternity has been put into our hearts. So we know that this whole thing, our lives included, is going somewhere. And we're compelled as creatures, not only to try to make sense of all of it, but to try to make sense of the specific things that happen in our lives. This doesn't mean we're always able to do that. In fact, I would say that many times we just aren't. We ask the why question for good reason. We simply don't know. And the fact of the matter is, when it comes to the mysteries of life, we may not have answers to them in this life. But here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you and I need to know that in the midst of these things, our Father has a plan which he has set forth in Christ. Human history, the breadth, the width, And the depth of it is essentially the grand stage upon which redemptive history is unfolding. And Paul says here that at the center of that stage, there stands a lone hero. A brave knight who once came from heaven's throne, from his father's realm, to rescue and to retain a bride for himself. God the Father 
is ultimately going to draw together all the threads of history and all of the threads of our lives so that fully, finally, completely, and in the end, everything will be summed up or made sense of in Christ. Now I told you that these verses contain high and lofty things. Things that I think if you're anything like me are a bit hard to wrap our heads and our hearts around. But here in verse 10, Paul says that the mystery of God's will, according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ, is a plan. It's an outworking of an architectural drawing developed in eternity past among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which God is actively executing through all of the seasons of history. You could easily translate it as as a plan for the fullness or the summing up of the times or the seasons or the eras of history. In other words, at different points in time and at different seasons in history, God is doing different things, but one ultimate thing, bringing about his plan of redemption in and through Jesus Christ. And here's the thing that you and I need to get. This includes your life and mine. This includes everything that's ever happened in human history. This includes everything in the seen and the unseen realm. In Christ, it will all eventually and ultimately make sense. The word unite in verse 10 literally means to put the head back on. Now look around. And you will observe everywhere the evidence of a headless humanity. A humanity that lacks sense, meaning, a humanity that is distracted and disconnected from life. But just like everyone you've ever met is longing for freedom, everyone you've ever met, everyone you know, and everyone you will ever meet is searching for ultimate meaning. Every one of us, in different ways and shapes and forms, is asking the question, why am I here? What is this life about? Is there any meaning to be made of this at all? One author summarizes the human condition this way. He says... Apart from Jesus Christ, we are running around with our heads off. All over the world right now, people are asking, what's going wrong? What's wrong with us? The biblical answer is that we are running around with our heads off. When we reject the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what happens to our lives. Division. Disorder. 
dysfunction, meaninglessness, chaos, confusion, mess, muddle, shambles, rat's nest. It doesn't matter what word you use for it. What label you put on it. The point is that you and I and our world are in the shape that we're in because we are literally headless human beings. But God, Paul writes, will ultimately bring order to all of the chaos. And he will do it through Jesus Christ. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Life is hard. You all know that. <coughs> and oftentimes it leaves us with more questions than answers. But Paul is saying that there is real hope in the midst of the confusion. It's sometimes hard, again, to wrap our hearts around this. And I, I think, again, that this is why Paul prays the way that he does at the end of chapter 1, but we're nonetheless talking about real hope. You see, to the natural mind, the world is coming apart at the seams. But to the mind governed by the Spirit, to the mind who has received the spiritual blessing of perspective, which is essentially what Paul is saying we've been given, God is actually right now putting things back together in the risen and reigning Christ. The letter of Colossians is the companion letter to Ephesians. In Colossians, and in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One of my college professors said one time, and I will never forget this, Jesus is the cosmic glue that holds it all together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God set to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, here's another identity statement, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled or forgiven and redeemed in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Brothers and sisters, it is a true spiritual blessing to know that God has a plan. 
in the midst of change and turmoil, whether that's on a global scale or a national scale or whether it simply involves family drama, whether it involves sin struggles or dysfunction in your workplace or any other form of brokenness, we as the people of God have eternal perspective. As Paul writes in Colossians, God intends this insight to help us remain stable and steadfast. Even when it feels like things are being tossed to and fro on the open ocean. Do you have that kind of perspective? Do you have the kind of stability that that provides to anyone who knows Jesus who is going through a storm that's only available in Christ? If your life is upside down, the only one who can truly turn it right side up is Jesus. That's essentially what Paul is saying. But you do have to surrender your life to him. He has to become your head. He has to become the one who leads you and guides you, who instructs you, who grants you wisdom and insight, not only into these global eternal perspectives, but into how these things affect you and I every single day. Friend, if Christ would not be your head, then you are subjecting yourself to the chaos monster. To the one whose sole purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. To literally unleash chaos throughout your life and to lead you down the wide road whose ultimate destination is eternal destruction. If you would have meaning, then you must have Christ. If you would have meaning, if you would have significance, if you would have purpose, if you would have perspective that enables you to remain stable and steadfast in the midst of all the change and turmoil that we all experienced, you must have Christ. Father, I pray this morning for every person in this room. God, undoubtedly, without question, every single one of us has been through challenges and difficulties. We've been through turmoil. We've been through change. We've been through things that, Father, frankly, felt overwhelming. Perhaps there's someone here, many people here this morning, who are going through overwhelming things right now. Things that just don't make sense. Father, I pray that no matter where they are on their spiritual journey, that they'll turn to you, that will turn to you, and we'll find out and discover as your spirit reveals it to us that, Lord, things will only ever make sense, ultimately in Christ. And in the meantime, as we await the fullness of the times, 
we are given through the Holy Spirit a stability to walk through all of the challenges and the difficulties and to face all the questions of life in Christ. Oh, Father, we pray for your help to do that. We pray again for that spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you that we might know that we know that you have a plan and that that might affect truly how we live every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's uh, respond together this morning in song.
And that's essentially what we are rehearsing week over week over week over week as we walk through these first verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And look, I'll be honest with you, we could camp here for months unpacking all of the riches that God has poured out upon us in Christ. But I will commit to pray for you if you will commit to pray for me that God would grant all of us